This is Scott McNamara with another episode of What's New in Adapted Physical Activity. Uh, today, I am sitting across from one of our universities. Great athletes. We have a Paralympic athlete at the University of Northern Iowa, which was really cool. And I had a discussion with all my friends at all these universities, and none of them had Paralympic athletes at their <laughs> universities, so I felt even better about it. I have Jesse Himes. Uh, and she is a track and field Paralympic athlete. I'm going to let her tell you a little bit more about uh, herself in a second, but I'm just super happy to have you. I'm Welcome. happy to be here. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We're really just in my office, just uh, surrounded by like three plants and a bunch of coffee mugs. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so okay, so I want you to tell everyone a little bit about your, let's first off start with, because I don't want to get things wrong, mm -hmm. okay? Tell people a little bit about the sport that you're playing um, and kind of your past experience in the Paralympics and where we're trying to go right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, so I play in track and field, so I do short sprints and discus, and I am on the Paralympic team, which is um, a sister game to the Olympics that has um, athletes of different disabilities and different um, abilities that have uh, different categories. So I'm classified as a lower leg impairment because I'm missing my lower right leg below like the shin ankle area. So that was an amputation. So I'm classified and I compete against those athletes at the Paralympic Games. And then when I'm not at the Paralympics or with Paralympic athletes, I compete on my UNI track team, which is against able-bodied athletes. Awesome, awesome. Maybe we, we should touch on that one mm -hmm. in a little bit too, because okay. that's really interesting. Okay, let's start out with um, the track and field. How did you get interested in track and field in general? Yeah, so I started running when I was 10, and that wasn't necessarily track and field, but just running in general. Um, all the way through elementary, my parents had me do like the soccer and the t-ball and like all those basic sports. And I liked them, but my older sister, when she went to middle school, she started cross country. And being the younger sister that always wants to be like her, I was like, hey, she's running, I want to run too. So I started doing that, and I realized I liked it more than the other sports. Like, I love the team atmosphere, but with running, I liked how I could kind of push myself and kind of be me against the time, me against myself, and not necessarily compare against other athletes. So I started um, doing um, a local track club for youth kids all in, like, middle school. And then I started doing my middle school team, and then eventually that went into high school. And each year I got a little more passionate about it, and I got a little better and started training more until I... Um, got to a level where I could compete in high school and then compete eventually in the Paralympic level. When did you, so, when did you feel like uh, that the Paralympics were even a, like a, a reality? Um, when did, I mean, I don't, maybe you had a dream of it at the beginning, but like when did it actually seem like, hey, this is something that could actually happen? Yeah, I was first introduced to the word Paralympics when I was, I believe I was 12 years old. And at that time, I had never heard of them. I had never, like, that was the first time I went to a meet where there were other disabled athletes around me because in Iowa, we don't really have a lot. and We don't have a local program of that. So my family, my mom went on Facebook one day and found a link to this um, uh, disabled meet in, Ari not Arizona, in Oklahoma. And so we drove down there one summer, and there were a bunch of athletes of all ages, of all sizes, and of all disabilities. And it was just like a local youth track meet, uh, but for disabled children. So I went there and someone brought up like Paralympics to my family. And we said like, we have no idea what that is. We've never been in a room with this many amputees running before. Um, so they kind of brought that up and it was obviously way in the back of my mind because 
I was 12. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't really something I was thinking of, but like every kid you think of like, oh, I want to go to the Olympics and something. So it was kind of planted a seed in my brain at 12 years old. And next summer we went back to that same meet and then they introduced us to more meets around the country that you could drive to and compete with other Paralympic, not Paralympic, but other disabled athletes. Um, and slowly over the years, I was I was paying more attention to the Paralympics and to the meet. Uh, like 2012 that was a really big year for the Paralympics and then slowly up to 2016 I was a little more aware of it I traveled a little bit farther to go to meets and to compete and I started competing on a little higher of a level it wasn't until 2015 that I really thought I might have a shot at this like the year before I was on my first world's team and I realized like I was competing on the same platform as the world record holders in my events and that really kind of sparked me that I really wanted to get that dream and I really wanted to compete for that. And thankfully I was able to the next year. That's awesome. <laughs> and right now too, you're, you're currently uh, doing kind of qualifiers mm -hmm. right now and then you're saying you have to hit a certain standard mm -hmm. and then next year is when they actually select the teams. Correct. So you're busy right now. Yes, very. <laughs> Can you real, like, kind of really briefly talk like what's that process of trying to go yeah. like, where you're trying to, to get into the 20, uh, 20 Olympics? Yeah, so the Olympic team is not um, decided up until the summer before at one specific meet called the Olympic Trials or the Paralympic Trials. So right now, what all the athletes are doing the year before is we're trying to reach a standard in our event. And that standard is a number or a time that basically gives you a percentage of what your likelihood is of meddling at mm -hmm. the next games. So they take last year's time of top three in the world and you compare your best time to that. And if you hit the standard, then you automatically have a mark to go to at the trials. And then once you're into the trials, you have to get the top three to be um, even selected for the team. And then it's selected even stricter from that. Yeah. So that's uh, a lot of pressure. Yes. <laughs> and what is like the, the, the average kind of lifespan for, for the, the sport that you're into? Like, are you some, so you're in your early 20s, I think, right? 20, yep. So you're looking probably at competing for how long in this sport before maybe you transition to being a coach or? Yeah, that depends on which event. Because I do sprints and discus. Yeah. And sprints has a much shorter lifespan for Paralympics. Most of them age out around 30. Okay. Especially for women, it's a lot younger of a peak. For throws, that, I mean, you can basically throw forever as long as your body holds up. Okay. Um, at the... Maybe 50? Yeah, yeah, almost. We have some athletes. Yeah, that yeah, age. Yeah, when, yeah. In the twenty sixteen game, was the youngest by twelve years. Okay, wow. Yeah, which wow. was crazy, but that kind of showed me that as long as I keep my body up and kind of stay healthy, I can prolong this for a pretty long amount of time and stay in the game as long as I have passion for it. Very cool. So this is something that you're definitely looking at for hopefully a long time. Long term, yeah. <laughs> throwing, no. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, though, between this. Are those two sports normally uh, something that, that somebody would do together? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> Not even close, yeah. yeah. People are always taken aback when I tell them I do sprints. Oh, and I throw. I don't really look yeah, like a thrower. A... I don't have, like, the big build that most people yeah. have. Most, like, throwers you can look at, like, they could beat me up right now. Sure. I look like I can get beat up, probably. <laughs> well, the, I, I, my former my former advisors was a uh, sport discus thrower as well and he's got you know i think he went to the olympic trials years ago as well but he's like a six six and <laughs> humongous right? yeah yeah so yeah so how, how how does that work for even like your 
like strength and conditioning for you. Yeah. I was interested in that. Yeah. Sorry. So okay. So discus is actually surprisingly not an event you need to be like have big brute force for. Yeah. Shot put you do because it's huge, you know. But discus is much more technical than people realize. Yeah. And so being a sprinter, I have that like quickness around the ring and I have more agility than some of the other bigger athletes yeah so that actually helps me in the ring and I am able to better hit positions and be a little more flexible to hit certain positions yeah so I like work a lot with the training to get stronger but Mm -hmm. it doesn't always show in like my overall like build but I can get a lot further with my technique I just need to be more focused on that rather than trying to just chuck it that's awesome that's (laughs) awesome um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about your road to getting the Paralympics a little bit more. Um, you kind of talked about kind of the steps as far as you getting motivated. Mm-hmm. Now, what were the things that you felt like were, um, did you encounter any barriers to you getting to the Paralympics? I'm sure you did. Cause, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of that was just finding coaches that were willing to work with me, particularly like I started when I was in high school, early high school, kind of getting into the Paralympic field, which yeah. is not really an age at which people take athletes too seriously. Yeah. You know, like you see like the gymnasts that go and they're like 16, but you realize like that's a different age bracket than usually track athletes go at. So in high school, you don't always take them too seriously. So I had difficulty trying to balance finding coaches that would work on me on the side and in the summers, because for high school, basically everyone starts in February, then you're done in three months. and. Most athletes don't work out in between then or don't mm-hmm. train in between, but I had to do sort of a year-round, especially because Paralympic meets are in the summer. They start when high school track and field ends, and then they go through August when school starts. So I had difficulties first trying to find someone that will work with me because I, mean, I don't blame people if they don't want to because it's not very common that you get an adaptive athlete. So a lot of people aren't very educated on how to go about that and how to work with that. So that was a bit of a challenge. Thankfully, I found a sprint coach and a discus coach who were amazing and super willing and welcoming to find that challenge and kind of go through that with me so we could both learn together. Yeah. Um, I think that was the biggest one, trying to find that, because it's a really scary world, especially if you're in your high school years and trying to sure. like act and be mature enough to go to these meets, but you still don't know like quite how to deal with that, and your body is like, changing all the time, so you don't yeah. know how to... like do the peak that everyone's talking about doing like multiple times a year and trying to balance that with just being in high school and trying to just enjoy your high school years but also mentally trying to focus on something that's a more of a professional circuit than you're used to that's kind of a personal challenge too so and and I think I I misspoke for a second because I was going to say I think I said something like it must be difficult or you must have Mm -hmm. encountered barriers I really meant just because you're at the Olympic level yeah it's crazy (laughs) um but so was it hard to find coaches that were at that elite stature or was it hard to find it that were willing to work with an adapted athlete or both a little bit of both yeah because yeah. i didn't just want some uh coach that threw in high school for a few years and yeah. said, oh, i can probably help you because you know you don't want to go backwards and all the other athletes i was competing against most of them were professional and some of them were living at olympic training centers mm-hmm. where they have those world-class coaches so I knew if I wanted to be in that level and be um, competing alongside them, I had to have someone who was knowledgeable but also willing to work with me. And that was kind of difficult to think, okay, like who am I going to call? Like who, yeah. who has both of those qualities? Because they're difficult to find, especially in a small town in Iowa, you know. Um, but thankfully, I didn't have to go very far to find them. And 
Yeah, both of mine were high school coaches mm-hmm. um, from different schools than mine. But they were both really, they had really good track records of the athletes that they worked with. Um, not necessarily that they had good athletes coming into the program, mm-hmm. but they took average athletes and made them excel when they came out. And I saw that, and I really saw potential in them. They could see potential in me. I really appreciate that. They didn't just want an athlete that came in already being good, but they wanted an athlete that they could help unlock all the potential they had inside them. Definitely. Do you So do you think that the some of the barriers that you had, you think that they were similar to somebody that's an, an able-bodied athlete trying to go into the Olympics? Or like, do you think that they're parallel, or do you think that you might have had some additional ones? There are definitely some overlaps and parallels in that because most of the issues that the Olympic athletes have to go through, we do too. You know, the training, the traveling, mm-hmm. the cost of going to all those, finding the um, coaches and finding the teams. But a lot of Paralympic athletes have difficulties just starting the sport because we have different equipment just to get running, which I think is something that kind of goes over people's heads. That I can't just go outside and run because I feel like it. I have to have a special prosthetic leg. and those can cost upwards of $20,000, which is like college, you know, <laughs> you can't get afford that. Yeah. So there are difficulties with that, just getting started into the sport. You have to kind of take a risk because, you know, you don't want to throw all that money out the door and then not like the sport. You know, it's more difficult with that. You can't just try it. And if you don't like it, like, ah, toss the leg out, you know, in the trash, you don't need it. So a lot of that is first off is just getting the equipment, trying to work with insurance to get that, you know, getting a racing chair, getting a running prosthetic, getting discuses, which like um, Olympic athletes have to do too, but just additional equipment on top of that is difficult just to get introduced to the sport. Sure. And once you're into it, I mean, I've changed a billion different running prosthetics. Mm-hmm. But it's because as you grow, as you get stronger, as you kind of specialize in your event, you have to change the format of your blade, the size, the style, the sheets of carbon on it. And it's, it's a lot of different technical things that as you progress in this, the more time and money you have to invest in it. And that becomes a challenge of like, where do you draw the line? Like, do you really want to um, pursue this further? Cause you kind of have to make the decision. Like, am I willing to invest all this together? Definitely. Um, so you kind of have to make that decision and kind of put a little risk in there that you think it's going to be beneficial in the end. So you aren't wasting this, um, like the money and the time. Uh, thankfully there are a lot of different, um, groups and organizations that can give out like they have grants for prosthetics and a bunch yeah. of wheelchairs which is fantastic because i mean no one could afford it besides that especially with insurance issues that a lot of disabled people have so thankfully they i have a lot of i've had a lot of different organizations help me over the years like through that because you it's more difficult than just going out and running you have to get that equipment and it's usually not accessible especially yeah. Like me, I have to drive four hours to my prosthetist. I always have and probably always will. Um, There are ones locally, but if you want to get someone who is more specialized. So that's, I know that's a big challenge for a lot of disabled athletes is Mm -hmm. just getting the equipment to start with and making sure it's in tune because if your prosthetic isn't working, your body won't be able to um, pull that along. You know, it can hinder a lot of your training and a lot of your competition. So are there people that are getting their prosthetics and such, uh, like, paid for through the insurance companies? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Some people, yeah, um, have really good insurances. It's, I mean, it's a toss-up on who. I mean, can get I, I, say, I mean, like, I mean, like, ones that are made for, for sport, not just for. Yeah. Yeah. Some yeah. of wow. them, yeah. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them aren't. Unfortunately, a lot of people have difficulties even sure. getting walking legs because 
is seen as a luxury. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Such a luxury being able to like, get off that. the couch. I've heard that. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I know a lot of people have battled that over the years. And thankfully, my parents have tried to keep me away from having to deal with that. And mm -hmm. they've hit a lot of those struggles from me, which I've appreciated. Yeah. They've um, tried to make sure that I didn't feel myself as a burden to the family and to all of that. But a lot of people have to deal with that. And they have to deal with that on their own, Definitely. which is super scary. Yeah, no, you said that. I was like, people are getting, uh, they're, they're, <laughs> that's great because, uh, yeah, we need to start pushing like health and wellness more than just like preventative stuff. Yeah. Like, like, so because this, this podcast is kind of sort of geared towards PE, APE teachers, mm -hmm. adapt physical education, uh, I wanted to get your perspectives a little bit. And I say that and really it, it's pretty gen generic and mm -hmm. health wellness activity for people with disabilities but i wanted to hear kind of your experiences in physical education mm -hmm. um you know even as a small child to to more recently um and you know did that help you well, let's start up there what were your experiences <laughs> in pe yeah so for the most part i've had pretty positive experiences my introduction in elementary school was fantastic I had a gym teacher, Blake Williams, who was phenomenal. Um, I don't think he even realizes how much he's helped me. Because um, I, you know, with my family growing up before I went to school, they kind of could control what I was introduced to. They controlled making sure that I felt a part of everything and making sure that I didn't feel like a burden if I needed to, like, stop and adjust my leg or if my leg hindered a family activity. So I think it was really nerve-wracking for my family to kind of let me go into elementary school and in a place where the um, situation couldn't always be controlled by them. So in gym class, I think, was a big one they were worried about because I couldn't necessarily do all the things regular kids could, or at least not in the same way. Um, but my teacher that I had for four or five years, he was really great at acknowledging that I needed sometimes um, an adaptation to certain activities or I couldn't always do the same activities for the same amount of time without hurting my leg. And he was really good at kind of acknowledging that and saying like, yeah, you need an adaptation, but it's not gonna hinder the rest of the class. It's not gonna be a burden. Like, we'll just change it for you and you know, I don't have to make a big deal. And that was really great. I mean, I didn't always realize what he was doing, but I kind of could internalize, especially now looking back on it, the ways that he made me still feel included, even if I couldn't do the same activities. Mm -hmm. Even if it was as small as like, just telling me I can leave on my shoes when we go on like the trampoline when the other kids had to take it off because it was hard to get it on and off my prosthetic. There's like little things like that where he didn't make it a big deal of like, oh, we have to go like change the entire plan. We have to like change all these things for you. Like he just sat me down and said, okay, you can like, how do you need this to be changed? If it doesn't hurt or if it doesn't help you, we can, you know, find something else. If it hurts you, just let me know and we can find a different activity. And he was really great with just kind of letting me make sure I was a part of the team, a part of the group, and doing all the same activities, but mm -hmm. that I was welcome to change it or stop if I needed to. And that was really great. Um, I know going through middle school, I had some issues, which I don't really remember very much, but I know my mom um, remembers some issues of times where I just felt really excluded from the group and that I felt like the people and even like the adults my life in the school felt like I wasn't um, like I wasn't able to do certain things and kind of looked down on me for that and like I guess I don't really remember much of that. That's your other students then? Other students way. and some of the adults too like okay. some of the teachers and coaches um, 
which I know she said I had a hard time with, and I think I kind of breeze over. I think everyone kind of glosses over middle school sure. years, but um, no, there were some difficulties with just the way they handled the situations, mm. which is, looking back, it's understandable um, that they didn't know how to. It's unfortunate they didn't have the education or the experience to figure that out, but a lot of people, especially in school I went to, they just didn't have the ways to reach out and figure out how to adapt. To me, they hadn't had to deal with a child with a disability in my certain way, mm-hmm. where I think a lot of schools are used to either you're a regular child or you're going to go into like the special education, and they knew how to handle both, but they didn't know how to handle someone um, that didn't have a mental disability but still had a physical one yeah. that could still handle the same situations as the other regular children but still had to have an adaptation. Um, so I know there are some difficulties with that that kind of hindered me mentally and kind of like hurt me a little bit. But um, after that high school, I was able to kind of um, kind of advocate for myself a little bit because early like middle school and elementary school years, you just kind of do what the teacher tells you, you know. Um, so I kind of had to learn at an early age to advocate for myself and figure out what I needed to do to adapt to certain things because it was difficult to have someone who could say, okay, you can't do this, how about you do this instead? Because mm-hmm. sometimes that would exclude you from the group and sometimes you just needed a small adaptation. Say like, hey, I can't run all these bases on this game, but I can be a pitcher, I can mm-hmm. be a catcher, I can do these different activities and still be involved in the group, just not in the same way as the other athletes. So yeah, there was definitely some difficulties with that, but um, my, I mean, my elementary school, PE teacher was amazing. He really set me up mentally to kind of be okay with having an adaptation, kind of making me focus more on myself versus myself as opposed mm-hmm. to myself versus other athletes. Um, I know my mom said one day, I was like third grade or something, I came home and I told her about how we ran the mile and how I said that my gym teacher told us um, that it wasn't about comparing yourself to other kids, it was about comparing yourself to your own times and how well you thought you could do. And she said it sounded very profound (laughs) from a third grader. But, I mean, just knowing that he told us that, I can really see how that was ingrained into my brain, Mm -hmm. how that really promoted me um, to do that. And that helped promote me into track, and that was the reason I ended up liking track the most was because I could focus more on myself and, like, me against the clock, me against myself. Um, I think that was really important for me to see, especially as someone who would sometimes fall behind the other students in physical activities knowing that I didn't, that I had an adult telling me, like, don't focus on the other kids. You can use them as motivation, but don't use them as a reason to hinder yourself. Like, just focus on how you're doing because you're on a different field than the other athletes. You know, you can't compare that. So just focus on yourself, and that really helps. I mean, it was really, I was young when he told me that, but that has really impacted my life and kind of helped me through the hard years when I had some adults that you think, like, adults should be able to handle all situations, you think, as a kid, but... Looking back, you realize that they just weren't educated in how to handle that. So I was really grateful I had those kind of uh, mental barriers taken away from uh, by my uh, early gym teachers that kind of told me how to handle the situations and kind of focus on myself and not worry too much if other people don't think that you can do it. That is profound, <laughs> uh, especially if that came out of you in third grade. Yeah. <laughs> it came from him, from you. Yeah. But uh, I, I think your point, uh, touch on that a little bit longer, that's something we talk about a lot on this podcast, is not, like, uh, I don't think we're always just talking about all the great things about um, the field of physical education in relation to teaching kids with disabilities. Um, I think a lot of times we talk about how there's 
uh, a lot of times um, most areas in the nation, uh, excluding some states and some regions, um, overall do a really poor job of teaching kids with disabilities in PE, mm -hmm. as well as training teachers to, to work with them. So like even here, and so I'm supposed to be like one of the, I've, I'm a, this is my area, right? But at this university, our PE students only get one class in it, right? Mm -hmm. So one broad class on every type of disability and how to work with. So like I might go over amputees, amputations for a day, mm -hmm. and then they're out in the schools working and trying to do that. So they have almost no, um, you know, exp like yeah. experience background, and that's something that we talk a lot about on here is how. Um, and there's some some universities now that are, you know they have entire you can get a entire majors in mm -hmm. that um, you know or a minor where it's about work you know teaching kids mm -hmm. with disabilities in PE but it's a major issue and as I know in the state of Iowa I'm gonna assume that you didn't probably have anybody that was a specialist or usually we call them adaptive physical educators mm -hmm. um, to teach you so but like somewhere like in California a lot of times now they have a multiple APE teachers um, in one district so they go out and they consult with the PE mm -hmm. teacher or they teach you you know um, you know themselves but a lot of you know some, like a lot of times they would just go out and consult so mm -hmm. tell those PE teachers that maybe don't realize or have the experience hey this is what they sh should do so it's always it's a thank you for sharing your experience because mm -hmm. I think it's profound to hear from you but um I don't think we do a very good job, especially certain places like here, on how to, on prioritizing mm -hmm. and how to teach our teachers how to teach kids with a variety mm -hmm. of disabilities. Yeah. So. And a lot of that is we just don't get a lot of athletes with disabilities or even students with disabilities um, from a wide range of different ones, especially like my school mm -hmm. in Iowa, we don't get a lot. If you go to like a large um, city, you have a higher possibility of running mm -hmm. into that. But I was one of the first amputees that they'd had in a long time come through. And so it's kind of like, well, like, how do we handle this? We, like, no, we just put the special education in one group, but yeah. like, she doesn't fit under that category. Like, how do we work with that? I think the biggest thing that they hit was just inclusion of making sure that I was a part of the group, was part of the class. So a lot, like, for kids, it's more being with the group and being with them as opposed to, like, training. Like, right now, you focus more on training because we're older. We have specific sports we're going to. But as a kid, you just want to be with the group. You just mm. want to feel like you're participating in the game. I think that was something that I had the biggest issue with when I got older and had some coaches and some um, gym teachers that didn't include me in the games. They would say, like, oh, just go to this other room and play this other game. That's like you just want to be with the group, even if you can't do all the things that they're doing. Yeah. You know, you can usually find something that we can do that involves us in the activity and makes you feel a part of it. Even if you don't have, even if you don't have like the capability of doing the same things all the other kids can. It's an interesting perspective. Uh, we we had a podcast a few months ago about inclusion, and I think that person kind of that was on here kind of shared some their researcher and kind of had some different thoughts than I think of that we normally think about when we talk about inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I I like your perspective as well. Um, I want like. For you, so even now what you're talking about, like I'm now here trying to train at these high levels, right? Is it like, is inclusion always necessary? 
is and do you think it's always beneficial and do you always enjoy it it's it's always I feel like necessary especially like if you're on a team yeah but it depends on the type of inclusion because um, like right now like on the track team at UNI I am very included as being a part of the team like they see me as a team member I can wear the UNI clothes I can compete on the team that doesn't mean that I do every single workout with them and do every single rep with them because there are things I physically cannot do with them and there are a lot of days I have to alter my workouts because I can't do it in the same way that they can. Mm -hmm. So inclusion, it, it's such like a gray area, but you have to kind of alter what you mean by inclusion. And sometimes like you run into coaches that think that they have to alter the entire team's workout to fit what you can do, which is not the way you should like gear things. But inclusion is important in the way that you know that you're not an outcast. You know that you're taken seriously as an athlete. Um, but you can still alter the workouts and do your own thing that is beneficial to you because you under, you have to have that mental understanding that you can't always do the same things in the same way as the other athletes. So for me, the inclusion, like I kind of need now, is just the team. It's more from like the teammates as opposed to just the adults because I guess now we're technically adults. But just the inclusion of knowing that you're um, accessible to the team, that you're a part of the team but that you are still okay with having separate workouts, having like alterations in certain things. Uh, so like I don't, I can go to practice and know I don't have to do the same workouts as the other. Sometimes that kind of eventually gets me down knowing like, okay, I can't physically do that. But knowing that the coaches and the other athletes are okay with me doing a separate workout or sometimes if it's just two of us, sometimes they'll like kind of alter theirs to fit better with me. Just knowing that you're um, taking like okay and seriously from the other athletes surrounding mm -hmm. you knowing that you're not just like kind of thrown out like, oh yeah, this girl just kind of runs on the track with us sometimes. Sure. Like, no, she's one of our athletes. She's just doing a separate workout. Like that's the biggest thing is knowing that you're taken seriously and as a part of the team. Yeah, so an inclusive community mm -hmm. feeling more than maybe just the activities yeah. and the different skills that you're working on. Because mm -hmm. that should be different for each of you anyways, especially yeah. at the level that you're at. Yeah. But, Interesting. I think you've answered that very well. <laughs> Thank you. But, <laughs> um, okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit more then. Uh, kind of on, so we've gotten to some of those philosophical mm. questions <laughs> and debates now. Um, talk, let's talk real quick about the Paralympics and the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So recently their committees came under one kind of title, right? Mm -hmm. So now yeah. it's just the Olympic Committee. Mm -hmm. And you are an Olympian. Yes. Uh, you're not just, and I, I don't know because I've also heard people kind of sometimes go back and forth on, are they a Paralympian mm -hmm. or are you an Olympian first? But I, it, how do you see yourself? Yeah, I sometimes use the word synonymously. I mean, they're technically not, but like, I'm very proud to be a Paralympian. Like, I have no issue with saying, like, yeah, I'm a Paralympian. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just for um, clarity for people, I say, like, Olympics or, like, Olympic trials because that's what it is. They're sister games like how I say it so like I use them somewhat synonymously but there it is important to know the distinction of Paralympic versus Olympic because we do have some different um, sports and they do have somewhat different rules for each of them but some people are realist sticklers about like which one you use but I'm not I'm more free with like how I use them especially because in the area not a lot of people are as aware of the Paralympics. Mm -hmm. uh, if I go to some other cities or some other states, I can say Paralympics and people know exactly, mostly other countries, a lot of European countries are super good at knowing the Paralympic rules and what they are. But more um, locally, I tend to use them both, so it kind of 
ingrains in people's brains like okay, sure. they're like similar like that they're under the same kind of umbrella but they're like I'm officially a Paralympian but I mean people call me Olympian and I call myself one too so I'm not real big on like specific titles on that but definitely mm-hmm. why well, and it, this was something that happened in a conference I was at we they kind of talked about that mm-hmm. subject and I mean I, from my understanding you are an Olympian is like I mean it's they're they're not synonymous, but they are very close. But yeah. you're an Olympian and a Paralympian, mm-hmm. so you have kind of both distinctions. Yeah, kind of like fingers and thumbs. <laughs> there you go. Sure. So you're both on the hand. <laughs> Got it. Um, okay. So the the committee though has come under an umbrella, mm-hmm. and I know that there's a push for like kind of, uh, or it looks from my viewpoint, there's a push for some like more inclusion mm-hmm. on the Olympics to include people with. Uh, you know, varying abilities and, and or sorry, d- different uh, disabilities mm-hmm. under their umbrella. With that, um, I kind of, so my mind goes into like, what does this mean in 10 years from now? Um, and even from this, this keynote that I saw last week at this conference, they were, st- they were talking about this conversation as well. Um, is that, is the Olympics in some, at some point going to, completely consume the Paralympics and then the Paralympian athletes will just be ingrained within the Olympics. Um, and I, I don't know if that's something that commonly comes up, uh, but what are kind of like the your viewpoints on that? Is that a positive thing or is that, I, I don't know, like is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's good for there to be a little more overlap in it so we don't feel so divided. Yeah. Because uh, sometimes like both groups to get together, like the Olympics and Paralympics, uh, like particularly after the 2016 games where like both teams are invited to the White House, like for the first time, all of the Olympic and Paralympic athletes from all the sports were all together. And talking with some of them, it was kind of interesting to see the different grasps of what even they had ideas of what the Paralympics were. Cause, like mm-hmm. you think that they would understand it because like we're at the same meet sometimes, but there's not always understanding. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to have that overlap, and especially like from a community standpoint, understanding what the Paralympics are, and that it's a professional team, and that it's a very serious team. That you have athletes who are sponsored, athletes who hold world records. You know. Um, that we're not just like a local track club, you know, outside running. Um, but I feel like in the future, it will never be fully incorporated under like one jurisdiction. Um, and that's because it's important from a Paralympic standpoint to have the separate uh, people working for us because, or us working for them, I guess, because there are a lot of rules and differences with Paralympic athletes that most people don't understand so like our coaches are very specifically trained for Paralympic athletes and Paralympic rules and games Mm. so it's very difficult when we have an Olympic coach come over to us and try to like um, dictate what we need to do because it's such specific training that we have that they aren't always aware of or like traveling like planes and stuff you a lot of the Olympic athletes don't realize like the traveling we need certain buses we need certain wheelchair accesses we can't go on the same like plane routes all the time because um, some athletes require certain services so even just from a like logistics standpoint it's very important to still have that distinction of Paralympics because there are a lot of changes that we have that most um, non-adaptive athletes don't have to deal with and then from the standpoint of the rules of the specific sports we have some sports that Olympics don't have and even just in track there are some differences that we deal with that the rules are different on the Olympic side Mm. so I think it's important to still have that distinction 
Um, some people really want to integrate it, and like I'd be fine with that as long as we still have someone to go to that is completely educated on what we need. Because um, there are a lot of things that go into Paralympics that most people aren't aware of, and aren't aware of our challenges and our differences and what we need. Um, and that can be kind of tricky sometimes, uh, especially like competing right like right now on the uh, like you and I team. There are a lot of things that I have to remember to do for myself, like the um, carrying of my prosthetics to and from the competitions. Um, some athletes who are uh, wheelchair athletes, they have to know how to fly and travel with their racing chair. Um, some people throw in chairs, like they're seated throwers. And so the setup of that, the rules of that are way different. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of athletes that aren't that are on the Olympic side aren't aware of that. And a lot of the coaches on the Olympic side aren't aware of that. So if there were to be a complete merger of that, we would definitely have to have a lot more education on the Paralympic side. Uh, there's a lot of things that go into it that we as athletes shouldn't be fully responsible for remembering, mm -hmm. uh, especially just in actual competitions. So Absolutely. Yeah. Now, <laughs> something too, though, it, the full integration kind of concept, um, and a fear that was kind of presented to me too was kind of that some that, you know, and, and this goes like, you know, sometimes for the Paralympics, a lot of the poster, mm -hmm. whatever athletes for Paralympics are people mm -hmm. that have more mild, quote unquote, disabilities, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then there are there is a place in the Paralympics for some people that have more severe disabilities, mm -hmm. uh, quote unquote, again. Um, but like someone like like Bacha has been a place for mm -hmm. a lot of athletes, and has been. And I think the last in twenty sixteen, it got you know it was on TV and everything. But um, I think there's also a fear that some of these people that maybe have some more severe CP and, you know, mm -hmm. um, that they might be left behind in an integrated mm -hmm. kind of setting as well. Um, is that something that is talked about or anything that, that you have thoughts on? Yeah, that's actually like a very interesting discussion point for some of us Paralympic athletes. We have like kind of what we're called um, photographic disabilities. So like mine as a leg amputee, it's very obvious what I have and what's wrong. Where some people with more mild CP or with like BP, you look at them and you aren't always aware of what they have or like why they're wearing the Paralympic uniform. Uh, like some guide runners, like you can't tell like are they guide runners? Are they like the FCP? Like what's going on? So it's a very interesting um, kind of bell curve of what people want to see from Paralympic athletes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they don't want to see the ones where it's like an arm CP or like a leg CP or like, oh, they walk funny when they're like, you know, not around us. We want to push them away and we assume that they're under like the special Olympics like category because like they're walking funny. They must have a mental disability. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's, they're in a kind of like one end of the bell curve and the middle is like the photographic disabilities of someone with a fully functioning up, upper body but they're in a wheelchair or like leg and arm amputees where it's very obvious you can look at them and say yes I recognize that disability then on the other end of the curve are the um, I see like wheelchair athletes that have function of like one arm or they're paralyzed up through like the chest and things that people look at and they aren't as comfortable with because they don't function as similarly to able-bodied athletes like for me I can get around for the most part very similarly to everyone else like I can take stairs, I can like do most of the things that people can. I can put on a pair of pants and you usually can't tell the difference between me and other people. Whereas people get really nervous on the ends of that bell curve where it's not as similar. Either it's too similar to the able-bodied athletes where you question what this, like how the disability affects them. They're on the weight end where you feel uncomfortable with discussion with them or just advising them as an athlete and as a person because they look quote unquote too disabled to compete or to um, be an athlete. It's like a very interesting bell curve and 
I feel like I, I definitely have a privilege in being in that middle part because I have like a photographic disability and people know how to approach me as a person, as an athlete. Um, so integration with that could definitely hurt those on like the ends of the bell curve that aren't as obvious of disabilities or they seem too obvious and people don't know how to handle that, um, especially from like a media standpoint, which um, we're trying to get a lot better at that, like in media as a promotion of Paralympics and understanding the size of the Paralympics, how it's not just all like amputees. It's like you usually think of that, you think of like the 2012 Oscar Pistorius runner at the London Games, like that was very obvious disability, and that's what you think of when you think of like Paralympics usually, but there's a lot more to disability than just the obvious ones, um, and so I think it's very important to make sure we keep both and like all the ends of that curve um, under the same branch and kind of lift it up as recognized as still Paralympic athletes that either you don't look disabled, um, like right just like looking at them but they do have a disability or they look very disabled but they can still compete and they're still considered athletes definitely jesse i can't believe how profound some of this conversation's <laughs> gone and you're 20 years old yeah. like you said wow that's pretty incredible <laughs> all right let's finish let's wrap this this conversation up i want to let's let we're going to transition from this philosophical conversations about physical education and paralympian athletes versus olympic Let's finish on your road now to the 2020 Olympics, which are going to be where? They will be in Tokyo. Tokyo. So let's, okay, how do you get a flight to Tokyo? Let's talk about <laughs> that. What are, what, are, what are the trial, what is your journey? Yeah, so right now I'm in like the pre-Olympic year, which um, the year before and after the Olympic Games, they have what they're considered like world's years. So this year we have two different international competitions. Um, uh, for the rest of the year, there'll be um, Para Pan Am Games in Peru and then Worlds in Dubai. And basically, those are kind of kickstarters to getting your name out in the field and kind of getting prepared for the trials. So, like I said, that will be times where I can hit the marks and standards. Um, and hitting certain standards will allow a slot for an athlete to go to the team. So, like, the more we compete, the better times we get, the more likelihood we have of making the team and making it at trials. So right now I have times that will allow me to make it to trials for next year. So over now I'm really kicking it to get better on a standard, have a higher percentage um, compared to my world rankings and all my events. So I'll do that hopefully in Peru and then Dubai later this year. Um, and then I'll punch my ticket to trials next summer. And that is where you actually um, are allowed into the team. At trials you have to place in the top three um, this is where it changes from Olympics. Olympics, if you make it the top three of trials, you automatically make it to the games. Uh, for Paralympics, the top three are, they take the top three per event, and then that's the pool that they choose the team from. So it's a little more selective. So you could get first in an event and still not make it because you still have a percentage you have to hit. So they'll take the top three out from an event, and then they take high percentages top to bottom until they run out of slots for athletes. So that's that's a very high <laughs> uh, high intensity level at that meet. Wow. Um, yeah, I've only been to one other Olympic trials, and that was in 2016, and that was a little nerve wracking, especially for my first time there, because I was about to start my senior year when I went, so I felt very <laughs> overwhelmed by all of that, and kind of all the rules and the things you had to hit, and knowing like I have to make this certain mark to make the team. Um, very high intensity level, but I feel better going into my second time because I've been at more international stages, I've been at really high um, intensity meets, 
And those are the ones I tend to perform better at because I kind of do better with like that all the energy and excitement. Yeah. I can like somehow zone in better when I have those as opposed to like more relaxed me um, or like a college me. So I'm excited about getting back in my second time because I feel a lot better about like who I am as an athlete in my training and I can focus a lot better and I think I'll hopefully do a lot better. So <laughs> I said I was going to finish this and then it just <laughs> hit me that I've asked you all these things about before you were in the Paralympics, mm -hmm. and then like kind of this road to getting back to it. Mm -hmm. What is it like being in the Paralympics? <laughs> Get, like what Crazy. is that? <laughs> what is that? Because like it's all like I've been asking you before and after kind of. What is that event like? It's absolutely insane. I was down in Rio for two two and a half weeks, roughly. Um, as I left, it was my I was a weekend of my senior year of high school, and I left to go to um, Houston, where you have like um, team processing which is where you get all like the sponsored like gifts and like all the uniforms, which was crazy. So like that was my first time I realized like, okay, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, like I'm in this. So like when I got the official like USA uniform was there, which yeah. I put it on in my hotel room that night and I like, didn't take it off for like three hours. Um, but yeah, going into that arena, um, there was, there's like the track and then there's like a side track beside it. And like walking into that stadium for the first time, because you train and do all your warm-ups on the side track the warm-up track, but you don't actually go into the arena until you compete. So, like, there is, um, so cool, there is a warm-up tunnel beneath the track of where you um, compete, and then there's a tunnel leading up to it, and I competed at night, so all the lights were on, and, like, I walked up to the stadium for the first time on the floor, and I felt like I was in a movie. I just, like, walked up this tunnel, there were lights, they were screaming, and I felt so dramatic in that moment. It was, like, that's when I realized, like, Oh shoot, like I'm here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the game. This is insane. And yeah, I'm pretty sure I cried a few times while being there. Just like out of pure excitement and joy. Like like my life is so blessed that like at seventeen that I was able to go to this meet and compete against all these other athletes. It was it was extremely surreal and I like to think about it <laughs> as often as I can, just like remembering that I was there and that I had, and I've lived such an amazingly blessed life that I had the opportunities to be there. And my dad actually got a cool panorama of the stadium that he hung above my bed back home, um, my parents' house. So like, I like going there sometimes, like when I feel overwhelmed in my life, I can just look at that and be like, okay, like I've been blessed enough to make it to that level in my life. Like I can calm down, like look at my life and you know, like I've done amazing things so far and that it's been a really good life and I can, Know, kind of calm down and know that there's so much more to come like life's gonna get so much better from here on out so it was it was uh, absolutely amazing <laughs> that sounds amazing i wish i had a parallel uh, experience it's awesome well jesse it has been a pleasure i don't want to take any more of your time thank you for coming on and uh yeah spending the day with me yeah, so thank you for having me it. yeah absolutely <laughs>